0: Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy. The Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I'm lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their eyes, their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, "How long, O Lord?" And He said, "Until the until cities lie waste without inhabitant." And houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains, then it will be felled. A holy seed is its stump. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, kids. Each week we light one of those candles the light becomes fuller. Every time we wait, and we wait patiently, we allow the light of the Lord to invade our lives. That's what Advent is about. Allowing the light of the Lord to invade our lives. That we acknowledge that light really only comes from one place. If there's a light that satisfies if there's a light that fills if there's a light that makes holy and complete it is only from the light of the lord and so in advent we wait for the coming of the king what is advent advent acknowledges that christ is coming and we are waiting Christ is coming and we are waiting. What, what matters is not that you are waiting. We are actually all waiting. The whole world is waiting. But what matters is how you wait. That's what informs us. That's what changes us. That's why Advent is important. That's why the busyness and the chaos of the Christmas season. There's a lot of things you could be doing. There's a lot of things you can be busy with. There's a lot of things that place demands on your time and burdens upon your own heart. But the question is, is what owns you? What owns you? Is it the one who is coming? Advent acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come. Christ came when God two thousand years ago sent his son through the Virgin Mary to give birth to this newborn babe, this king, the king of the universe, God became flesh and dwelt among us. He came. It acknowledges that the Messiah, the one who sets my soul free, has already come. There is a great freedom that comes with that in Advent. There's a great freedom in know that there's no earning that no striving that we have to accomplish. There's, there's no accomplishing that, that has to be done for us. Because it's already been done for us. So we don't have to worry about that. We know that he came. But Advent's also making sure that we don't just give lip service to that. We don't just say it with our mouths. But, but there's room in our hearts. Let every heart prepare him room. <laughs> That's the wonderful Christmas hymn. Let every heart prepare him room. Go tell it on the mountain, over the hill and everywhere. Go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let every heart prepare him room, that our hearts, that our hearts would belong to him. And we would acknowledge in our waiting that we are not our own, but we've been bought with a price. And so waiting acknowledges not just Christ's coming, but Christ's filling of our hearts and lives and then finally that he's coming again there are some things that actually are undone in this world all you have to do is read the news all you have to do is open the newspaper or if you want you can open your google in your internet or watch what's trending you see that that this world has not been fully made right right Yes, our hearts have been made right by the work of Jesus Christ to atone for our sin, for God's glory. But at the same time, there is not justice that's completely been met. There are some things that are undone that God is going to finish. That at the cross, he finished it once and for all. And with that promise of Jesus's dying breath is a proclamation that he will come again to make the world right. And so there is a cleansing, there is a promise cleansing that we look forward to right now. Or even in our own hearts, if you're honest with yourself and you're honest with one another, even in our own hearts, not everything is right. There is still much that God needs to do on this side of eternity. And we come and we say, God, do it. God, do it. When we were singing that song, Surrender, It was a prayer that I started to pray. God, help me surrender. And I I just want to start there. I want to pray that God would help us surrender. Lord, Lord, we know, even as it says in, in your holy word, God, that unless you open our hearts, we won't be able to perceive you. If you don't open our eyes, we won't be able to see you. If you don't open our ears, we won't be able to hear you. So God, help us see with our eyes and hear with our ears so that may, we might acknowledge you, God, in our hearts. Help us surrender in Jesus' name. The church says together, amen. Amen. So we live in a cultural moment where Christianity is on the decline. Now, when I say Christianity on the decline, you'll actually see Christmas to be alive and well in our culture. All you had to do was be a part of Black Friday or Cyber Monday, and you didn't even have to leave your own home. Thank you very much. I mean, I love living in the Internet age. You order things, and then you get to the doorstep, and you're like, oh, what did I get for myself? Wow, isn't that really amazing? You buy your own gifts. Like, I don't have to tell my wife to buy me a gift. I've ordered it before she's even thought about it, and I say, would you please wrap this and put it under the tree for me? That's the way Christmas is these days, isn't it? But there's this nostalgia that comes with Christmas. I remember as a, as a, as a little boy, just knowing that, that Christmas was coming. And then even on Black Friday, my mom would venture out and she'd bring us with us. And there was this kind of excitement that was in the air around that time. I don't experience that excitement anymore to put me on Google and I'm fine. But uh, uh, in that time, there's this nostalgia that came, and, and, and there was something in me that, that saw the good, but somehow missed the bad and the ugly. I, I mean, I was, I was kind of mesmerized by the Christmas joy, but I didn't really realize that, that everything wasn't really perfect in the family. Everything was, really wasn't perfect at home. That's why the holidays sometimes can be joyous and difficult, because my family's just weird, and so is yours, Right? right. We all go through that, right? It's like, why is this kind of weird? Because, because nothing is completely right. And so Christmas comes with a promise that God is making things right through his son, Jesus Christ. But we still know that we're not there yet. And so the nostalgia kind of wears off. And it can become a tradition, a holiday tradition, where we try to recreate and reinvent that. And then when it's all over, we feel like we've got a hangover and we're depressed and we're still waiting for something better. You don't have to do that. We don't have to do that. We don't have to live in that anymore. But realize that in this cultural moment, Christmas, Christmas is not about the Christmas story. It's about Christmas consumerism. It's about trying to fill this insatiable appetite in your heart. And you might find yourself in a high for a moment, but it'll fade off and you'll find yourself longing for more. And in our cultural moment, Christianity, the manger, the cross, and the throne, those are the three icons. The manger, the cradle, the cross, and the throne are kind of the three icons that represent Christianity today. And and let me tell you how our world or our American culture views those three icons is the cradle is sentimentalized. Why is the cradle sentimentalized? Because it, it shows of God's humanity, but not his divinity. In fact, it acknowledges that Christ was a man. But really, when we get down to it, we won't acknowledge him as God. And then the cross is trivialized. Why is the cross trivialized? Because it's kind of this generic general symbol of love. But it doesn't tell us of a ferocious love by which God put himself on the cross for love. And why is the manger or the cradle sentimentalized and the cross trivialized? I believe, and this is what I'm going to declare to you today, is because the throne is forgotten. The throne is forgotten forgotten because king jesus does not sit on that throne so who says who says i'm not waiting the way i should be waiting who says this doesn't fill me who says i should live in this way or that way but what the christianity proclaims is that if jesus is on that throne then he has full right and authority over all of your life and it also says that the one who was born in the manger and crucified on the cross invites you in a place of safety into his arms and into his brace. And that that throne is a throne of grace and mercy for anyone in any time of need. That he's a good king, a loving king, but he is king. He is king and you cannot miss that. And so may we today remember that the throne Is where Jesus is sitting. And that is the declaration of Isaiah. It's not a typical advent passage. It's not a typical warm and fuzzy passage. But it alludes to the holiness of God. If you open your Bibles and you see in Isaiah chapter 6. The uh, author who is Isaiah the prophet starts off with these words. In the year that King Uzziah died. In the year that King Uzziah died, just two days ago, we had a loss of one of our presidents, George H.W. Bush. And it's a reminder of the frailty of life and those who are in the height of power are, are ha- have an expiration date, that they're not going to be in power forever. And that, that our lives have... Only a short time here on planet earth. And it might feel like when you're in your prime and you're in your young that you feel like you could live forever, but you won't. And that when kings and rulers have authority, they feel that power and they feel like nothing can stop it and nothing will take it away. But at the very least, they will die. One out of one people die. The statistics are in. You're not going to beat it. Neither am I. One out of one. And our president, George Herbert Walker Bush, passed away two days ago. I even think about that in uh, the time that I lived. I was about my son's age, eight or nine years old. And again, it was a thought that the world is right. You know, mom and dad are taking care of everything. That was good, man. What a great, what a great gig I had. Ah, just sign me up for that again, right. And, and all, all was right in the world. It was kind of the end of the Cold war, war. But there were still problems. There were still issues. But we look back at these time periods and we think that, man, things were really good. When in reality, things are much like the way they are today. Still in need of mending. Still in need of God to bring holiness to his world. And in the, king, in the year that King Uzziah died... It was a reminder that when kings and princes and prime ministers leave the throne, there is one who is eternally reigning, and that's King Jesus. He's on the throne, ruling and reigning forever. King Uzziah was a king who many of Israel looked at fondly. He he ruled in his young age with God's favor. If you look at... uh, the book of chronicles you see that in second chronicles 26 verse 15 his fame spread far for he was marvelously helped. This was the king that was known in Israel as the king that was marvelously helped by God. He was the king that many people looked at and and, and saw the divine favor of God. There was economic prosperity. There was low unemployment. It was a great time to put your money in the stock market. I mean, King Uzziah's reign was good for Israel and they seemed like they were unstoppable for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. Till he was strong there's a great temptation when we get strong and the, and the great temptation when we feel that we're strong or we have strength is to think that that strength comes from ourselves and not from the God who gave us everything and this is what Uzziah did but when he was strong he grew proud he grew proud he started to think that it was all about him He started to disregard the king on the throne. He started to let this whole throne thing go to his head, thinking that I'm the king, I'm the ruler, and he forgot about God, just like we've forgotten today in our world to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord, his God, and he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Now, what's the big deal about that? Why would it be such a big deal for the king who's... Over all of Israel to go into the temple and to burn the incense at the altar of incense because God's word actually says he can't. He's the king, he's not the priest. And so when the king goes in and thinks he could be the priest. He's breaking the holy covenant, the holy law of God by claiming powers that are not his own. And so when King Uzziah did that, he was rebuked by the priest that was there and God struck him with leprosy. And the last 15 years of his reign was as an outcast out of the city, out of the place of prosperity. And while he was an outcast, Israel began to decline in power, decline in ability, and Assyria started to rise up. That was the other kingdom power at that time. In fact, if you read the book of Isaiah, you see that God is the one who allows Assyria to rise up and to overtake Israel in order to discipline them. That this is God's way of chastising his children so that they might return to the Lord. And Isaiah sees this king of kings in that situation, in that circumstance. And as he's there, this, uh, before this great king, in, with this vision, it says above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, now picture this. Like, like we, we have a hard time getting around this because I, I don't think we know what a seraphim looks like. I don't really know what a seraphim looks like. I just have what's described for me in scripture. Uh, but I, I don't think it's like Cupid who's fluttering around with an arrow on Valentine's Day, trying to hit some unsuspecting target and make them fall in love. That's not a seraphim that's not the angel that the bible is describing here describing here but god has made a very specific creature that has one purpose and that one purpose of this marvelous creature is to encircle around the holy throne of god and sing a song saying holy 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 is the lord god of hosts the whole earth is full of his glory and that thought, that song is being sung right now If you look in Isaiah, you'll see it again in Revelation. We see eternity past to eternity present. These creatures are encircling the living God and they are ascribing Him the worth and honor and glory to His name. This is the holy God. This is the majesty of God. This is the marvel at which we stand and we sit here today. God's perfect holiness. Perfect holiness. Yesterday, I, I made steak on my grill. My father-in-law bought me an early Christmas present, brought it over to my house. Thanks, Dad. Appreciate that. He's here. Thanks, Dad. Uh, and, and, and I mean, w- what a great gift. And, and so over the last month or so, I've been trying to perfect this art of the seer, right? Uh, I haven't really got it down, but yesterday was money. It was money. Put that sirloin steak on the grill, perfectly seasoned, had it the right temperature. Man, put it right down and you could hear it sizzle. Oh, it sounds so, so good. It's the whole experience, right? Anybody getting hungry? Yeah, this was better than Outback. Thanks, Isaiah. There's an Isaiah right over there. Um, I see that hand. And so put the steak on the grill and, and then, you know, the time to flip it, that, that's, an, that's an important time. You know, you don't really know it and, and, and there's no real science towards it. You can't really watch a YouTube video or read the book. You just gotta learn how to figure it out. It's just this gut feeling and I knew it. The Holy Spirit showed me, this is the time to flip the steak and so flip the steak and then after I took the steak off the grill, I, I cut into it. I took a bite and you know what I said? Perfection oh it's perfection perfection, but we all know that's not like the perfection of of God right i mean there 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 was something that was perfect in that moment in that time with that steak that was really really good but but it wasn't the perfect holiness of god when 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 we had uh Lily she was our third born child we had lily we uh, we went into the um, we went in the hospital normally with her, like we were like brought in, uh, with the twins. It was kind of like any day now, make sure you're ready to go. And we were ready to go. And you know, they came pretty fast and it was kind of, uh, it it kind of eluded us there for a moment the the joy of that time, but for Lily, we, we went in and we were ready for her. And, uh, and, and so Carrie gave birth, uh, we gave birth, right? It was team teamwork team effort there. So we gave birth to my daughter, Lily, and Carrie was a little bit tired and I understand. And so they, they brought me Lily and they they put her in my arms and, and there's this beautiful six pound, one ounce girl right there. And I looked at her and I said, she's perfect. And I think about Mary holding Jesus after running from Herod. And I think of her hiding out in the manger giving birth to this newborn babe with the farm animals that are around her holding this child. And she sees his translucent skin and his fingers and his fingerprints and his toes move. And she sees all these things about this newborn baby boy. And she says, he's perfect. Now, when she says he's perfect, it meant something different than what I said about my daughter. Because when she says he's perfect, she means he's holy. He's holy. The king who is on the throne is the boy born in the manger. And he is holy, holy, holy. Ray Ortland says this, holy, holy, holy is not just repetition. It's emphasis. It isn't one plus one plus one. It's perfection times perfection times perfection. It's infinity times infinity times infinity. So Isaiah, when he sees these seraphim encircling the throne, he feels like an ant in front of an F-18 Hornet fighter jet. We went to Disney World uh, 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 about a year ago. Maybe it was a little over a year ago because the Blue Angels were flying over the Magic Kingdom. That was marvelous. It was a great day, not just because of that, but because the kids were in school and we were at Disney World without the kids. How great is that, right? You, you, so it was like we had our Disney Mickey ears on and we picked the kids up from the car line. And it's like, we going to Disney World? No, we already went. <laughs> That's awesome for kids will torture them. But, but you know, if you've watched these F-16 fighter jets or these, 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 uh, F-A-18 angels, they're beautiful, beautiful birds, man. Like millions and millions of dollars in this one piece of equipment. And and if you've watched them fly, you know that that they fly a lot faster than the sound. So you could see them and just be like, what was that? And then all of a sudden, the sound is just coming way behind them. And you're like, wow, that thing is monstrous. That's a seraphim. A seraphim is this mighty, almost fighter jet-like creature. And it's saying, holy, 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 ascribing God's worth. And there's six of them right there, the blue angels flying over the magic kingdom. But I think that there's a greater throne with a greater creature That's, that's taking place right now. And it just never ceases, it doesn't stop. How holy is this God? He's holy, perfectly holy. And Isaiah's terrified. He's terrified. He's never seen something so fearful in all his life. Because if God is that holy, we have no business being around him because we're not like him. We are so not like him. This is where we look at Isaiah's response and we see the sinfulness of sin. That's a little play on words there. Are we sinful because we sin? Or is our sin sinful? Well, the Bible says that we are born with this hole in our hearts for holiness. And I know when I held my daughter Lily, that it was just a matter of time before that sweet girl who was cooing was going to look me in the face and say, No! (laughs) She does. I guarantee you. More than all the others. (laughs) but if we're honest with ourselves like there's something in us that says from the from the womb me first me first it's not about god it's about me i mean a little bit newborn baby it's a me first life and somehow we are corrupted to the core and that's why isaiah says woe is me because he sees holy 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 if you cannot say holy, 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 you'll never be able to say, woe is me. That's the problem with the culture of our world today. This is why people struggle so much with sin. It's not a matter of apologetics. It's not a matter of trying to get them the right answers to the questions of faith. No, I think that that's a very important part and we need that. But where we break down in the world today is on this issue of sin. Because they say, who says? Because they cannot see a holy God. He says. That's what defines sin in Isaiah says woe is me woe is me and he also says it not just for himself but among all of his people i am not only sinful but the whole lot of us are corrupted to the core woe is me i'm a man of unclean lips and i dwell amongst the people of unclean lips in other words isaiah is outraged he's outraged notice that we live in a world that's outraged today I was reading an article just the other day that talked about the outrage of America and how we feel entitled to it, right? We are so outraged. Anything that happens is just a matter for outrage and it just gets us inflamed with fear and vitriol because somebody made me upset. And that outrage just fills our heart and our anger starts to burn towards them. But let me tell you, Isaiah is outraged, but who's he outraged at? Himself. And his own people. It's a lesson for the church today. If our outrage and our anger doesn't burn as much for our own sin and the idolatry that needs to be cleared out of the temple courts right now, as it is in the outside world, then we've got a lot of inner work to do. We've got a lot of inner working to do. Because we are so good at pointing the finger at others, while at the same time, we need to say, God, you need a clean house in my heart I need you to. I will be devastated if you don't. And I'm not saying that we can't be critics of culture and seek to help the lost and broken world, but we won't see it as a lost and broken world unless we see our own sin. Because if we see our own sin, then we know that we've been given mercy. And so our response to a lost and broken world that can outrage us will be mercy and not hate. It will be God's love. Because God has loved us. I love this picture of George Herbert Walker Bush. Uh, over the, the, this, this past weekend, this letter started making the rounds. And he wrote this to his adversary, Bill Clinton. And uh, let me just read to you part of it. What he says after Bill Clinton took office in 1993. He, he said, there will be tough times. Made even more difficult by the criticism you may not think is fair. I'm not a very good one to give advice, but just don't let the critics discourage you or push you off course. You will be our president. When you read this note, I wish you well. I wish your family well. Your success now is our country's success. I am rooting hard for you. Good luck, George. Bill Clinton wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post yesterday. And what he said to him is he said, his, what he said about george bush he said his friendship has been one of the great gifts of my life i long for 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 that kind of civility in the world today i mean there was mess i mean there was lots of mess in that time but it lacked civility and it's not a perfect civility but i also pray that god would give us a civility that allows us to deal with one another as the imago day created in god's image Because we deal with life on a holy level, on a holy plane. And so Isaiah's outrage is an outrage of his own people, his own party, his own place of of significance is where he realizes he has turned to other things. And so the sinfulness of sin has caused him to cry out with honesty. I want you to see that there is a a response that God gives after Isaiah cries out in his own sinfulness. This is important. A response that God gives. It's a scandalous grace. Read it with me. Isaiah 6, verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me having his hand a burning, in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So one of those seraphim peels off from its flight path and it sees this altar and at this altar are these burning hot coals, these holy things. And with a set of tongs, The seraphim goes and grabs one of the coals and goes down to Isaiah and his focus is on Isaiah at this moment and he takes this tongue and he touches the lips of Isaiah with this coal. And in a moment, his sin is gone. His guilt is atoned for. He's been cleansed. He's been cleansed it's a a, a a magnificent picture in that picture there's a promise and the promise is is that this wickedness in our hearts that we see demonstrated through our actions has a thing that can happen that re, that, that that removes away the sin that removes away the brokenness that brings healing from our need of the, from our from our sinful and wicked deeds this Healing of grace that takes place. And in that moment where his lips, which represent the things that come from his heart as we speak, when we speak, the things that come from our heart is what makes our words either good or bad or holy or wicked. And so as this hot flaming coal touches him, it doesn't kill him, but it heals him. Why? Why is that? I believe because if you read the picture of the Bible from start to finish, there's a story that the Bible proclaims. And that story is a story of redemption. And the story is that Christ is that flaming hot coal who allows that holiness of God to touch the uncleanliness of your lips and you be alive. I'm convinced of that. That it's through Jesus' work on the cross that God Himself comes into the dirtiness and mess of our lives, and He brings cleansing and renewal, and it doesn't crush us, but it heals us. Why is that? Let me illustrate this point with a point from my own family and my own kids. Just a few nights ago, Camden got a spanking. All my kids, Adeline's the only one that hasn't been mentioned today. She's perfect. Don't worry about her. Uh, <laughs> uh, you might actually think that. She's not. She's not. We know her well enough. So Camden, he, he, uh, he did something that, that was really um, dishonoring to me as his father. I asked him not to do something. He looked me in the face and he did it. And he did it very disrespectfully. And so as my kids get older, they kind of get less spankings. But when they get spankings, like it it actually means more to them. There's something that that feels like, oh man, that happened. That is not good. And so Camden got a spanking, um, went in his room, told him to bend over the bed, the whole deal, like wanted him to know this was not something you do to your dad. It's not a right thing. We needed to learn a lesson here. And so as that happened, uh, I uh, I I could feel like a a real sadness that was in him. And I started feeling sad. I remember my dad saying to me, this is going to hurt me a lot more than it's going to hurt you. And I'm like, yeah, right. That really hurt. (laughs) You're lying. (laughs) But I, I know kind of how it feels when you, when you feel this distance between you and your child, because you just had to discipline them. And so Camden's laying in bed and he's looking up at the ceiling and, and I go in there and talk to him. And I said, Hey Camden, you know why you got, you got a spanking? he said, yeah. And I said, why'd you get a spanking? And he told me why he got a spanking. And I said, did you deserve it? And he said, yeah, I did. And so you just tell me that or you really think you did? And he's like, I deserved it. And then I started saying, I, I said, you, using this as a moment to, to tie it to uh, the discipline of God. I said, Camden, could you imagine if you did that to me and I went to your sister Adeline and I said, Adeline, get in your room. Bend over the bed. I'm going to spank you. Adeline would be horrified. She'd be like, no. You would see the terror on her face because her son did something and she was going to get punished for it. I mean, she would have been absolutely floored. It would have been weeping and mourning. And it would have been a bad day, a really rough day in my household. And and, and listen, I would have been wrong for it. I would have been really, really wrong for it if I did that as her father because her brother did something wrong wrong. But God did that and wasn't wrong for it. Think about this. I told the Camden, then I said, Camden, if God punished you for your sins, you would not be able to handle it. You wouldn't be able to live up under it. Same thing is true of you and me here today. If God were to punish us for our sin and our looking at his holiness and saying we want nothing of it, if he were to punish us for our treason, we would not be able to survive. It's hell, death, and damnation forever. Like that's the penalty of sin against a perfectly holy and righteous God. But God punished someone else. Who did he punish? his own son, his only son, but did he punish his son or did he, or was this God himself? Yes, it's God's son, the one God sent to bear the likeness of God, but we know that the father is God, the son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, and so God says, I'm going to take your punishment on me, and the scandalous grace of God is that we don't have to bear the weight of our sin because there's someone who has and there's someone Who survived it. And that not only did Jesus Christ die under the weight of our sin. But he was buried and he fully died. And his carcass laid in an empty tomb. But God quickened his soul to life. And on the third day he rose again to say that he survived. That finished and final sin has no claim over your life. And so while you might feel a discipline of God in order to live in the way that you should live, you will never have to bear the full punishment of your sin because someone else bore that burden in your place on the cross. And so the cross, my friends, is not something that we trifle with, with as a symbol of love because yes, it is a symbol of love, but it's a symbol of God's wrath. It's a symbol of love to those who believe and it's a symbol of wrath to those who who, who don't believe, it's a scandalous grace. And as the gospel is preached, even right now, some of your hearts are are softening towards God and being healed, and some of your hearts are hardening towards God. And you're saying, I don't believe it, I don't want anything of it. Because that's what the cross does is it forces us on one side or the other to receive the gift of grace or to reject the gift of grace. But only the Holy Spirit can soften our heart in such a way that that gift of grace is fully received, fully offered, fully given, and lived out at the foot of the cross. We need that cleansing. We need that scandalous grace. And the rest of the book of Isaiah is this. It's the prophet Isaiah says, God says, and I heard a voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who'll go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. That's a call to ministry in that time of King Uzziah where he he died. It would be like a real estate agent going into real estate at the at the collapse of the housing market, when the bubble burst, it would be like you're going to be a financial advisor when uh, the whole stock market crashed. This is what it meant for Isaiah to go into ministry. People were going to push, eject on God at rapid pace, and God was overseeing all of it. God was overseeing the whole thing. And he said that the nation of Israel will arise or the nation of Assyria will arise if you as you read the rest of the book of Isaiah and that God will use this as a time to chastise his people so that one day they would not reject him any longer so that one day they would return to him. But Isaiah would never see that day coming He was going to go to a people and he was going to tell them of the things of God, but they wouldn't hear him. He was going to show them the things of God, but they wouldn't see them. He was going to try to capture their hearts with the things of God, but their hearts would be hardened. And why was this happen? To prepare the way for a greater prophet, to prepare the way for a greater voice, to prepare the way for the Lord so that those who come would hear the message of God and be broken by it. This is the cultural moment we live in today is that many won't receive the message. Many will reject it. Many will turn from God. But we, like Isaiah, are called to be a mouthpiece in the midst of it. We're called to be a mouthpiece, whether people will hear us and receive it or whether people will not hear us and reject it. We're called by the mercy of God to proclaim the holiness of God because we've been transformed by that mercy. Ray Ortland says preaching that is true to the gospel is one way God brings judgment to those who have closed their hearts. That Everybody is responsible for their own sin. Everyone's responsible for disbelief. Everybody's given the opportunity to see their sin and repent and turn from it. And the gospel is one of those things that holds them responsible. And either they can bear the responsibility or the cross of Christ can bear the responsibility. But either way, judgment is coming, whether that judgment comes with God's wrath or or the judgment comes by God's grace. And then finally, there's a promise given in Isaiah 6 13. Though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it's felled. The holy seed is its stump. There's a picture here of a forest that's smoldering. And the losses are severe. Ninety percent, only ten percent remains. But at the at the at the At the bottom of this forest, this smoldering forest, there's a stump there. And the stump is of the line of King David. That from the line of Jesse, David's father, there's the promise of the hope of the Messiah. And from this stump, new growth will abound. And the new growth is the remnant of Israel that will bring forth the the, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And as the new growth is born, so are david's children and children's children's children and grandchildren and through david's children or his line is the most high king who is born jesus christ who's the stump of jesse the babe in the manger the one who is reconciling a lost and broken world the one who sits on his throne comes through hardship and proclaims his powerful glory the question is, how will you respond? Will you today receive it or reject it? Will you say, God, open my heart this season and have your way in my surrender? Or will you say, God, I want nothing to do with you? Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you. Thank you that, God, it's through your word that we see these great promises and we also see the warning. And God, the warning, God, is something that resonates with me right now because, Father, I know I need your help to follow you, to surrender to you. I know of these dark places in my life where, God, I need you to move, move in power. And I ask, Lord, that you will help me receive you. God, I cry out to you. God, like Isaiah, Lord, I say, woe is me but I also see the beauty of that hot flaming coal and the redemption and work of Jesus. And I say, thank you. God, I ask for your help right now as we worship God. I pray that the song in our hearts would be real, that we wouldn't have to pretend, but God, you would utter from us, God, genuine and authentic worship that ascribes to you the glory and honor and praise. Do your name. In Jesus' name, the church says, amen. Would you stand as we worship?